Good morning all, Steve Parisi here with IBC Global. Hope your day is off to a great start as usual. Today we've got Scott Witt with us. We're gonna talk about a fun subject. Scott, how are you? Good, Steve, how are you doing? Good to see you. Likewise, thumbs up over here, going a mile, more like 10 miles per minute, uh, nonstop, but I think you've got the same thing going on just from what we were talking about, but all good, right? Yeah, for sure, good to be busy. <laughs> likewise, likewise. Well, the topic today is a topic that everyone has been asking me. I'm sure everyone's been asking you just with your background, which is the new tax law, the tax change in the life insurance industry, which is the first change in a long time, correct? I mean, literally since, since I was born in 1988. I mean, that's the last time we saw a major adjustment. Yeah, really, it's been, um, yeah, back in the mid 80s, there was some some activity, you know, brought about by the high interest rate environment back then, but it's it's been pretty, um, it's been pretty stable <laughs> since then. And so, and, and I think it took, it certainly took me by surprise. And, and I think it took others by surprise as well. And um, companies are definitely scrambling and, and advisors um, are scrambling to figure out, you know, what, how to advise people now in this new environment. But yeah, happy to, uh, excited to be talking about it today and, and uh, pick each other's brain uh, on it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to it as far as what we know from the IRS standpoint and how it's going to impact policies and then just the speculation from insurance carriers since we've got no real information or data from them yet because... It's a it's a project and a half. I mean, that's a big change they've got to make fairly quickly, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, anytime you reprice an insurance product, um, it's it's a massive undertaking. I, I think maybe this isn't quite as big as an original pricing, but there are, there are lots of ripple effects. It's it's definitely not as simple as just flipping a switch in the computer software and rerunning it. You know, there there are a lot of implications with agent compensation and um, even even a, a product portfolio. I think companies may take this opportunity to refresh which products they offer and develop some different versions and maybe retire some other versions. And it, it might even affect what segments of the marketplace certain companies choose to um, market their products to. And, um, you know, these changes may open up um, some market segments that companies had thought maybe were closed to them. Um, so there's going to be, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, backroom meetings and strategizing and some companies maybe don't want to be the first to be out there and then have other companies uh, react to what they did. So there's a little element maybe of a game of chicken too, where people are kind of waiting to see what other people are going to do, but you know, I don't think companies can wait too long because there there are some definite advantages to some of the changes that were um, adopted, and those changes, th those advantages, won't be realized until the companies actually do reprice their policies. Correct, correct. Yeah, and, and I've seen that some companies have come out and announced that as well. I've seen announcements. The changes occurred. We're going to see how other companies respond, and then we'll begin to update our product, or then we'll, we'll release the updated product, which I I get, you know, from from all aspects. Well, let's let's dive into it as far as what we know will change and how it kind of impacts 
cash value life insurance policies whole life from what we're used to today and then how this new change will impact the policy. If I'm the consumer, how is it actually going to impact me if I'm in the marketplace? Because if I have a, an existing policy, that'll be grandfathered in based off the rules that I bought that contract off of most likely. So that that's simple. It's just more so if I'm looking at it today, do I get it today based off the current rules or do I potentially wait for the update to occur, I think that's where a consumer may have some questions. Yeah, and I suppose there's a segment of consumers out there that have bought a, a policy in the last few months to several years, and they may be asking the question, are these changes so significant that it makes sense for me to replace my existing policy and get a policy under the new rules. And so that might be, that could be something we want to touch on later too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's come up. A lot of people have asked us that. So let, let's start, I guess, just with the, the MEC limits on a life insurance policy, if you'd like, and how those will be impacted on a policy. And we can start with an example. Um, take a 50-year-old male. Right. So if I take a 50-year-old male, and I've got this memorized because I'm a nerd with this stuff, if I take a $1 million death benefit for a 50-year-old male today, that'll get him almost a clean $50,000 MEC limit. Okay. Right. So if someone says, okay, I want the ability to put in fifty grand per year, we'll set that policy up a clean million-dollar death benefit because that'll give him a $50,000 MEC limit. We're minimizing the insurance expenses so we can optimize the cash value, what you and I always talk about. Now, based off of this new rule, my understanding is the same face amount, the same $1 million death benefit will obtain him perhaps, call it seventy dollars or $80,000 in, in a MEC limit, call it. So he's going to have more capacity with the same amount of death benefit. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. And I, I think another way you could say that is because the clients we deal with often have a certain amount of money that they want to invest. And so if this client wanted to invest $50,000 a year, under the old rules, they would have been forced to have a million dollar death benefit. But now under the new rules, maybe it's what, 700,000, whatever the math works out to there. And, 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 and that reduction in death benefit makes for a more efficient accumulation policy because you're not paying, you're not paying for mortality charges on death benefit that you didn't want or need. So for those who truly are motivated to get the most efficient investment vehicle possible, they want to lower the death benefit as quickly and as far as possible. And the the new MEC rules allow policies to do just that. Gotcha. Yeah, that's what I've, I've noticed as well, which is great. And thanks for kind of re-summarizing it. I like the way you put that. Um, so the MEC limit there, that's what we we've got a good sense of what will happen. The item that's still up for, for speculation that we don't know how, we'll change, how it will change yet is from the actual insurance companies. And this is just from my conversations with them. And they've been, hey, we don't have anything yet. As soon as we, we know something, we'll let you know, Steve. But right now, if we take that same situation where we've got someone they want to put in, use that $50,000 per year, how we'll set the policy up, how I'll design it typically is what company are we looking at? How low can we set that premium? Say it's $5,000, 10% of the total desired payment, and I can 10x that minimum premium. So money can go toward premium, PUA, juice the cash value. 
those limits, like that, that's the big question mark in my mind to say, hey, right now, like a lot of companies' comfort, comfort levels is at that 10x ratio. Some are not even 10x. So if that doesn't change, in my opinion, you say, okay, we have a lower death benefit. But if their comfort level remains, hey, I'm going to allow you to pay 10 times your premium PUAs and that's our max, then basically we're just scaling the death benefit down to comply with the new MEC limits and the premium and PUA limits would stay the same. If that makes sense. Yeah, I and and you probably have a better sense of, of how companies might handle that. You know, I get nervous. I get nervous anytime there's a big shift in the industry simply because there there's a there's a war going on. I mean that 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 you and I are involved in and we're on the side of designing the most efficient policies we can for our clients. And that by definition usually means scaling back agent compensation as much as possible and companies can control whether or not that continues to remain appealing and so i think one thing that that you and i and the 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 people that champion these types of policies are going to have to keep an eye on is what all of our favorite companies look like after these redesigns and we'll need to make sure that what we used to think was an advantage is still an advantage and how does one company stack up with another because there is an opportunity for a company to do things differently and i mean let's face it some companies have a motivation to take care of their field force they, they want to sell a lot of a lot of policies and they want to be regarded as a good company but they also may have a field force that needs to put food on the table and they might be um, certain types of policies might be hurting their own agents uh, in the sense that they're undercutting richer designs. So my, my point in all that is that there's a lot of complexity here and it's difficult, if not impossible, to anticipate how any given company is going to respond to these changes, let alone the broader spectrum of companies that, that you and I analyze. And so we're, we're going to have to do a lot of research after the dust settles here to figure out um, what is most appealing to us on a forward-looking basis. Yeah, definitely. And that's actually exciting it is to me to see what adjustments they make, what stays the same, what's not different. Do you give up flexibility? I mean, that'll be really interesting um, looking at how policies change. I'm interested always in seeing the guaranteed midpoint values, non-guaranteed I love that kind of stuff. So it will be interesting once those come out to see, okay, what's the immediate on the surface look? And then when we start to dig in, what's the real change? <laughs> but, yeah, and I think I think competition is good. And I, I think this I think this could spark some innovation and um, excitement that frankly has been missing in the life insurance industry for a long time. And uh, I, I know we're probably going to touch on this later, but there's there's some other changes going on in the world that, I think are going to throw more interest towards um, cash value life insurance and whole life insurance in particular. Yeah, and we can can kind of get into that as well. So I mean, on that point, cash value life insurance, that's always been an attraction to individuals due to call it the safety, liquidity, it's a fixed asset in a lot of ways, and the tax advantage. If you do everything properly, you've got a major tax advantage there, almost like a bond alternative. So with everything going on, I mean, this change is going to make it more appealing policies, that is, on the cash accumulation side. You can see stronger returns, greater cash accumulation. But then with everything else going on, i.e. the low interest rate, 
interest rate environment, call it market uncertainty with all the panic and who knows what's going to happen. Yeah, this definitely becomes a safe, safe component or safer component, more appealing for people to plow money into. Well, and, and I would add to that with the political environment we're in right now, you know, I think the general belief is that that tax rates are more likely to go up than down. And, and that would include uh, ordinary income tax rates and estate tax rates and the estate tax limits might be lowered. All of those things make life insurance even more compelling. You know, and, and I know you and I talked about this before. You and I have always believed that um, a well-designed life insurance policy can be attractive as a proxy for taxable bond investing. If we believe that before, and if ordinary income tax rates go up, then, and, 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 and the accumulation limits are, are more attractive because of the, the, the redesign, then if we believe that before, then we believe it even more strongly now. I mean, cash value life insurance as an investment just became far more compelling than it was two months ago. Yeah, and that's that's interesting too, because I mean, where where we'll hear the the argument in the other side of the fence, and we don't have to to dig into this, is when you look at a life insurance policy. Because I've heard this, uh, call it from seasoned agents, they're panicking a little bit if they feel like, hey, if the guaranteed rate gets slashed a little bit in whole life policies, that could make them not as attractive. Um, and without getting into the the weeds on that, there's two things. Um, just with your experience, I want to touch on one. I love the fact that you mentioned, hey, when you look at the top companies, like they haven't operated in a guaranteed environment, guaranteed element for what what's it been, like 150 years? Correct. Correct. So, I mean, you've got that component there where, okay, the guarantees, yeah, that's fallback, but it's never happened when you look at their rates and just their insurance expenses. And the other thing is, if the guaranteed rates are adjusted, that doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, the guaranteed values, I'm trying to explain this very well, will be impacted as much as one would think because it has more to do with repricing the product and such. Yeah, well, here's, you know, here, here's a mind blowing thing. And, and, and what this change will do is, I think, shine a light on a common misconception that people have had about whole life insurance, basically forever. With, with the interest rates being lowered in these various definitions, I, I think that, you know, the obvious conclusion, it's a wrong conclusion, but the obvious conclusion that people make is that, oh, the guarantees got weaker because the interest rate dropped from you know, 4% to 2%, let's say. But in reality, the way whole life insurance, the calculations work, the guarantees are actually going to be stronger. Um, the, the premiums are going to go up. You know, we talked about the, the policies being more premium rich because the high, the, there's higher premiums, the guarantees are stronger. Um, it, it's just that the, the growth in the future guaranteed values. Well, put it put it this way, the growth in the future values is going to come more from dividends than it is going to come from the growth in the guaranteed cash values. Um, which also brings me to something that that I think you and I might differ a little bit on this because I know you, you focus a little bit more attention on the guarantees than I do. Um, and not that one is right or wrong, but I, I like to make the point to people that because companies have been operating in a non-zero dividend environment for a century and a half, it's not really the guarantees that separate one whole life insurance policy from another. It's the non-guarantees. And I don't see any reason 
to believe that that's going to be any different on a on a forward-looking basis. I, I continue to believe that it is the non-guaranteed investments, the non-guaranteed mortality, and the non-guaranteed expenses that will continue to, to differentiate one policy from another. And to, to kind of piggyback on that, lapse experience is also something, um, the rate at which policyholders um, let go of their policy from, from one year to the next also has an impact on all of those other um, non-guarantee elements that I just discussed. Yeah. And so I, I don't think the underlying fundamentals are going to change for what determines long-term policy value. It's just, there's a, there's a little short-term hiccup here in terms of, you know, what, what the guaranteed um, values are going to be calculated at and, and what, what that's going to look like. And, and people will just need some time to get adjusted to that. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and, and thanks for mentioning that on the non-guaranteed side, because it kind of made me realize just how we will always position policies here from a, a marketing standpoint and showing, hey, here's how it works. It's also what I'm going to bridge into here or what I'm going to mention is kind of what attracted me to, to you and your firm and just your overview and how you work with your clients and set them up, you know, for the best possible position as you're, you're consulting with them and such is like, I'll always talk about well-designed policies with the four major mutual carriers. And the reason why is when I look at actual policies, not illustrations, but actual policies that have lived the test of time, I see that consistency. Here's the net internal rates return. There's no, you know, games or to say, okay, we under delivered drastically, the consumer's unhappy. Like I've seen it. I can see it. I believe it. It's real. And in conversations with you, you're like, all right, well, elite companies, especially when they're well designed, deliver. And it it lines up perfectly in that sense. And we've had a lot of conversations around this too. Just when you look at those companies actually delivering, okay, now when we talk with a the consumer, they're buying something that you have much more confident, you and I you and I have more confidence in that it's real, that it's going to happen because it's not, it's not just, oh, I hope it'll work out because the illustration says so, but then it doesn't. And then who's, who's impacted the consumer putting their money in it? Yeah. And you know, I think it's important to recognize all illustrations are raw <laughs> uh, in, in, in the sense that if, if they're viewed as projections, we know those aren't going to come true. But what I think you need to differentiate between is illustrations that are wrong just because the the economic environment is going to change. You know, if if interest rates continue to be low, um, we're going to continue to be in a falling dividend rate environment. That's going to affect all companies and future performance may be less than currently illustrated. That doesn't make any of those companies bad companies. Um, all that it, all that is is a reflection. Uh, of the fact that the economic world is not as great as as it was when those policies were issued or originally illustrated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's important to differentiate that from illustrations that are wrong simply because they are trying to to get business correct by being an attractive illustration. And there could be, you know, the the industry basically ever since computers were developed, the industry has been filled with gamesmanship in trying to make illustrations look as attractive as possible because you and I know, despite the fact that illustrations are not supposed to be the end-all be-all for choosing products, oftentimes they are. Oftentimes the best illustration wins and because companies recognize that, there's a lot of jockeying for position to have the best 
illustration. And I suspect that with these changes to the to the life insurance rules, that we're going to see you know some of that jockeying for position with respect to product development and. Um, it's important to separate out things that are real from things that are an illusion. And it's easier to say that than it is to actually do that. Like it, it, it requires some judgment. It requires experience. And you can't say with absolute certainty what is real and what isn't. And, and that's where the, the experience over a long period of time and proof of performance, that's where you can take some confidence from companies doing certain companies doing things the right way and not just chasing hot illustrations. Correct. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that. I mean, personally, like my policies are with a company. Most of my policies are with a company that does not illustrate well, but I've seen them always deliver. That's the thing. So, I mean, I, I want the actual proof, not just so, not just so much, Hey, here's this great illustration. And then it under delivers because I've seen that happen a lot. And that's where people get upset. I mean, I feel like that's where whole life has gotten a bad rap and makes it easy for people that are anti whole life to come and attack it to say, Hey, you were promised this much. And look, it delivered just, you know, pathetic compared to what you originally were expecting. People tend naturally to believe what they can see, not just what they can hear. So I get it to your point, what the insurance companies are doing, hey, here's our illustrations. These ones look the best. So people are going to buy it naturally because they can see it. But then that's where the experience comes in. Can I see any historical performance, not historical dividend history, real policies that have lived the test of time? Um, and, you know, there's consist a consistent answer there as far as what companies with the right design policies have delivered since the mid 80s when things have been as, how they've been. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I look at it too like this. I, I think you have to be able to explain why one company would have an advantage over another. You know, why is this illustration superior to another? And if you can't articulate that with one of the four factors that I alluded to previously, and, and again, I'll, I'll restate it, the, the primary three are investments, mortality, and expenses. And then I would throw persistency or, or lapses in as the fourth factor. Persistency is the rate at which policyholders keep their policy from one year to the next. And it it has a synergistic impact on each of the other three factors. And we, we, we can I can expand on that if you want. But if you can't explain why one company or one illustration is superior to another in terms of those four factors, then you're probably kidding yourself. And you know maybe, maybe your explanation is, well, I, I believe that the general account of company X, is going to be better than than the general account of company Y because company X is invested more in equities or they're, they're invested longer uh, on the yield curve so that, that a little bit of a enhancement there from a, uh, a, a risk or liquidity premium. Um, or maybe you believe that company X's underwriting is superior and therefore they are going to have superior mortality experience. Maybe it's an expense advantage. Maybe you've been able to design a policy more efficiently through minimizing agent compensation or for through taking advantage of these different definitions of life insurance and give give your policy an expense advantage maybe it's a persistency advantage maybe you have a company that has a really low lapse rate and because of that low lapse rate there are positive impacts on investment performance there's positive impacts on mortality in avoiding the so-called anti-selection spiral where the healthy lives leave and the unhealthy lives stay. 
And if you have a high persistency rate and people stick around, it also helps spread your expenses over a larger base and lower lowers your unit expenses. But if you're just saying this policy is superior to another because a piece of paper tells me that, don't be surprised if you're disappointed down the road when that company fails to deliver that sort of advantage or, or maybe any sort of advantage at all. Yeah. And on the, the sales side of things, that that's what I've seen happen a lot where typically the sales pitch is, oh, all companies are the same, doesn't make a big difference. Don't worry about it. All commissions don't impact performance. You know, sales tra- you know tracks or word tracks that were trained on from a sales perspective. But when you dig into it, and that's why a lot of my sales managers when I was new in the industry, I, I think couldn't stand me because I'd always question them and say, okay, why does this look different? Like, all right, Steve, knock it off. Um, and I didn't last there very long. I eventually I broke off on my own. <laughs> At least that's why you hope they couldn't stand you. I mean, yeah, it could have been something else. I hope that's a, yeah, it definitely could have been something else. <laughs> Um, but you know, it's, it's interesting when you dig into it, there is an impact and I always see it have a direct relationship with the ultra wealthy and these policies that have lived the test of time. Like it, the proof is there. So it's just setting it up properly. Um, but I could talk about that for a long time with you. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you, you and I know, I mean, with, with a very high degree of confidence that, we can design and place great policies. Can we say with 100% confidence that it will be literally the top performing policy in the entire universe? No, we, we can't. But but if you turn that around, you, you if you look at the illustration that absolutely is the number one performing illustration right now, we also probably can say with a high degree of confidence that it's very unlikely that it's actually going to stay ahead of the field. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Fully agree. <laughs> and, and, and so if you know you can be great, there's something to be said for locking that in rather than chasing um, you know, whatever is better than great and putting yourself at risk for being substantially disappointed. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've got an illustration came to mind. This is probably not the best illustration, but if I'm going to go via stocks, would I rather invest in an Amazon, an Apple, a Ford, a company that's been there for a very, very long time, or this company that's having explosive growth, look at GameStop with the whole thing going on there. You know, maybe it's a cryptocurrency, which very well could do well and, and could make you a lot of money, but... If I'm in it for the long haul, I'm more confident with an Amazon, an Apple, Warren Buffett style, right? Because it's proven, it works, you know it's going to be there with a whole life insurance product. I mean, that that's why people purchase these products, cash accumulation purchases, that is. Um, so I don't know why that came to mind, probably because of the whole GameStop talk recently with what's going on. <laughs> For people that are watching this like years down the road, they'll have to do a, an internet search on GameStop. GameStop. What are you talking about, man? Yeah. Um, let's um, let's kind of bridge into that point you mentioned earlier as far as if you have an existing policy or if you purchased recently, could this change uh, potentially make it make sense to switch over, right? If people are thinking about that or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't, you know, maybe you have a stronger opinion on this, but I'm, I'm reserving judgment at this point. And, and kind of an offshoot of that question is I have people that want to buy a policy right now and they're asking, should I wait? Should I wait the two, three, six, nine months, you know, whatever it's going to be, should I wait to buy my 
accumulation-oriented policy or should I jump in right now? And I don't have a great answer to that because I don't have a, I don't have a comparative illustration to see what, what the new series is going to be for these different companies. And I, I have been inclined to move ahead at least on a, you know, maybe a diversified basis. Maybe you don't put all of the money you were planning on doing it, but you put some in there because we don't know what the future holds in the next six or nine months. A person could become uninsurable. And I don't think that the difference is going to be that great. Like, and, and I've calculated, you know, we, we do a lot with rates of returns. And if, if I calculate, if I kind of boil everything down to an expected return based on a current illustration, a very attractive illustration right now is, is maybe in the four and a half to 5% return neighborhood. My suspicion is that after these changes come through, maybe that will bump up by 20 or 25 basis points. Maybe. And so maybe now we're talking about 4.7 up to 5.2%. And yes, 20 basis points can be significant over a lifetime, but I don't know if it's worth waiting nine months for on an opportunity that, that may no longer be there. And I think every, I think every individual has to make that decision for themselves. More, more broadly speaking though, what, what you asked me first was, should somebody consider replacing a policy. And I think the hurdle there is even greater. The, the longer your policy has been in force, the less appealing it is to me to even be contemplating replacement. If your policy was two or three months in and, and for whatever reason, which I, I wouldn't recommend, but if you were funding on a monthly basis and a new series was ready to go right now, I think it's, a, I think it's an exercise that, that you would take a look at. But for anybody who has a policy already, I would I would advise them to sit tight until we actually have new illustrations that we can look at. And then maybe it's worth going through the exercise just to put your mind at ease that you're not leaving some money on the table. I have a suspicion though that with the even though we design low commission policies, there's too much friction there in walking away from your existing policy and getting a new policy. You're essentially um, paying for another round of acquisition expenses. And, and I don't think that the incremental advantage you're going to get from the new series, um, the new repricing, if you will, is going to be enough to offset that additional round of acquisition expenses. I don't know. What, what's your take? I, I'd agree with that. I mean, I'd agree with all of it. Typically, I don't like replacements because it's, it's very rare that it makes sense. There are a few cases, but I mean, it's rare. Um, I mean, one thing I, I'll add just from experience, what I've seen anytime a change occurs in the industry is usually the company will give you the opportunity to say, hey, if you have an old contract based off the contract language or old mortality rates, this happened when mortality tables are adjusted, upgraded, I should say, um, is you can actually upgrade that contract to comply with the new contract language and new rates we still see it. If somebody has a policy that was issued pre-1988 and they have it, the company still sends them offers to say, hey, would you like to upgrade your policy to comply with today's contract language and today's MEC laws? So my gut feeling is they'll do the exact same thing to say, hey, if you have an old contract and you like the new one better, instead of 1035 exchanging it, 
You can just upgrade your contract language. Adjustments will be made, but we can do that. This way you comply with the new laws if it's a fit for you. Yeah, I have, I have two comments, comments on that. One, um, I can think of another pretty famous example in the industry with respect to borrowing. Um, back in the late 70s, early 80s, um, the concept of direct recognition didn't exist yet. And people were borrowing from their cash value at a very low contractual interest rate and then turning around and putting that money in a, in a money market that might be earning 14 or 15%. And I'm no tax expert. And I, I was not, I, I was still in uh, uh, grade school or high school back then, but I believe that the, the interest rate on those loans may have been deductible in some situations as well. So you had a run on the bank. You had everybody borrowing cash from their life insurance policy and taking advantage of an arbitrage situation. And the insurance companies didn't have money to invest in a double digit interest rate environment because all the money was flooding out um, into policy loans. And so companies came out with update programs to try to encourage um, people to amend their policies to direct recognition. And I don't know, there was some incentive uh, maybe with uh, enhancement of guarantees or I, I can't remember the details now, but but you're right, that, that was a, an example, another example of companies trying to minimize um, the headaches for their policyholders and to pass on uh, an advantage. And, you know, with that direct recognition, I guess there was an ulterior motive too, in that it was, it was good news for the company if people switched to direct recognition and their pitch was, hey, if, if you're a non-borrower, it's better for you to be on direct recognition because then all the borrowing activity from the other people is not going to drag down your yeah. uh, dividend interest rate. In this situation, I don't know. I don't know if I don't know if a company can 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 do that. Um, yeah. yeah, there is. It's just so complicated with the underlying aspects and the the guarantees and how the dividend is calculated. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm also not that optimistic that it will it will occur. Gotcha. I, 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 if I, if I had to bet money and, and uh, I, I wouldn't bet very much cause I'm not very confident, but if I had to pick one or the other, I would be inclined to say that old policies are grandfathered in new policies have the new rules. And I would be surprised if any of the old policies get manipulated in such a way that they're complying with the new rules. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, interesting. I mean, time will tell. I'm interested as well. The most recent example is just January 2020, um, where the, the new mortality tables, all companies had to comply with the updated mortality tables at that point in time. So all old contracts, I still get offers for my policy. When I purchased a policy, it was right on the cusp. I had the option to go with the old mortality tables or new ones. And still, they come out and say, hey, if you like the new ones better at any point in time, you can update your policy, which does have an impact on the MEC limits, you know, as to how things were, were adjusted there. Not huge, not like what we're going to see with this, um, but it was a, an adjustment. So granted, this is much different. We'll see. I mean, I'm going to reduce my small bet even more than I'm, I'm going to bet like one penny on, on what I said then. So gotcha. Gotcha. Well, maybe it pulls a Bitcoin and just shoots. <laughs> 
Cool. Well, this has been this has been great. Thanks for taking the time. I know you've got a ton going on with just your practice and everything going on right now. But um, no, really appreciate appreciate your time and excited to see what happens with this change. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting year. Um, it'll be fun to see how the companies respond to all these changes, and it's going to create you know some new some new projects, and uh, we'll we'll have to take a fresh look at everything, which uh, is always fun as well. I agree. I agree. Well, we really appreciate it, Scott, and uh, we'll talk to you. We'll talk to you next time. Okay. All right. Sounds great. Thanks, Steve. All right. Thanks. Bye. Take care.